What's going on, guys? I'm really excited because today we've got Dr. Tommy Lundberg on the episode, and we're going to be discussing transgender women in competitive sports. Now, this is obviously a very contentious topic, and there's a lot of miscommunication as well as misunderstandings on both sides. So what I wanted to do was get uh, Tommy on so that we could discuss some of the finer points about differences in physiology and determine whether or not transgender women actually do have a competitive advantage against women. Now, I want to be very clear, we are not going to discuss ethics or policies. We are just going to stick to the physiology and the differences between males and females and transgender women and biological women. So first off, Tommy, thank you so much for jumping on the episode. It's great to have you here. Can you quickly give yourself an introduction for those who maybe aren't familiar with you? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm uh, based in uh, Stockholm, Sweden. Uh, I work at the Karolinska Institute. Uh, uh, I've done that for seven years. So I defended my PhD uh, seven years ago at Mid-Sweden University in Sports Science. My thesis was focusing on muscle adaptations to training and specifically concurrent training. So the combination of endurance and strength training. So I guess my, the core focus of my research has always been centered around muscle physiology, uh, adaptations to training, uh, and things like that. And now, uh, yeah, we, a couple of years ago, we also got, got the opportunity to sort of apply that type of research in a, in a broader context, which is this uh, topic that we're discussing today, that the transgender, uh, transgender individuals undergoing uh, hormonal therapy. And, and, uh, we were interested in exploring the effects of cross-hormone therapy on, on muscular changes, etc. So that's how I got involved in, in this question in, in sports. Yeah, it's definitely a really interesting topic. Um, so to dive right in, can you explain what sexual dimorphism is and how that relates to athletic development? Yeah, sure. So uh, basically, uh, males and females uh, are different and the physical differences start to appear more prominently uh, during puberty uh, when uh, males uh, a lot of it is part uh, is because of the androgenization and the effects of testosterone uh, that start to spikes uh, spike in uh, during puberty for males so all of a sudden males reach much much higher testosterone levels uh, than females and uh, the result of this is that males are taller, bigger, they have more lean muscle mass, uh, they have slightly different anatomical features over the hip, etc., compared with uh, women. So this is the sexual dimorphism that you're referring to, that males and females develop differently. And this results in uh, physical differences, as I mentioned, in, in uh, muscular things like muscle mass, etc., but also in cardiovascular capacity, heart size, uh, etc. And these have, of course, huge performance implications. And that's very easy to uh, study because you can just compare world records or the average female versus the average male person. And you will find that uh, the differences at least 10% in world records in most sports and it can go up to uh, 50% in, in, in sports based 
that is very uh, much based on uh, strength, power, uh, especially for the upper body, etc. So uh, it's important, I think, to understand that the very best, if you compare the very best woman with the be very best man in a specific sport, they are all, they have trained very well, they have a, had a perfect uh, dietary habits, uh, sleep, recovery, the genetic potential is similar. So the only, the, uh, the only explanation for this 10 to 20, 30 percent difference is actually the sort of male versus the female development. Uh, so, so the the sex difference is is very very big and very very important for performance, and this is why we have separate sex categories in sport, and the female category is protected because of this male advantage. Right, and in one of the papers I was reading, actually, they mentioned that testosterone can increase by twenty times in males going through puberty. Is that accurate? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, uh, typically the, I mean, females only have one to two nanomoles per liter of testosterone and males have a, a, above 10, but up to 30. So between 10 and 30. So uh, 10, 15 times higher values typically than, uh, than females. So there's a big difference in testosterone levels. Uh, and this explains a lot of the differences in uh, growth and uh, muscularity. Uh, etc. But interestingly, it doesn't really explain uh, the adaptive capacity to training because when men and women uh, build muscle mass uh, quite comparably, even though uh, men have higher testosterone. So it doesn't seem to be so much about the sort of training adaptation capacity. It's more related to the sort of general maturity and growth during puberty. That's interesting. So you mentioned women typically have between one to two nanomoles per liter. And I know the International Olympic Committee or the IOC set uh, the upper limit to 10 nanomoles per liter for transgender women. Now I know some organizations have set it a little bit lower, I believe around five, but I wanted to know where these standards are coming from and do they actually reduce the physiological advantages of transgender women? Yeah, sure. So the IOC have had uh, very different versions of uh, regulations for, for transgender participation even already since 2003. So in the recent, most recent guidelines, which is from November 2015, as you indicate, they had, they have the testosterone, testosterone threshold set at 10 nanomoles per liter and the, uh, the testosterone level must be below that level for 12 months. So one year before a, uh, person can compete in the female category. So we're talking now about transgender women. So that's uh, a person that was born as a male, so biologically male, uh, high testosterone levels. But if that person identify as a woman, uh, that person can lower uh, testosterone levels below 10 nanomoles through hormone therapy and then compete in the women's category after 12 months. So that's the current regulation. Uh, the interesting thing is that I have not heard or seen a sort of rational or an explanation for the regulation uh, when it came out. So the IOC ha have never, to, to my knowledge, 
communicated the, the reason for 10 animals, the reason for 12 months, and the sort of physiological explanation for why they believe that this regulation would level the playing field, because that's the intention, right? So what the IOC say and do state very clearly in the guideline is that it is important in so far as possible to include transgender individuals in sports and in the category that they wish to compete in. But that uh, cannot be done unless the unless they can ensure uh, fair competition. So they actually st state that fairness in competition is the overriding objective. So that means that fairness comes first according to the IOC policy. So this means that the therapy, uh, the 12-month therapy to be under 12 uh, or 10 animals, uh, that must reduce the performance advantage otherwise you know, fairness is not achieved. And that's the problem right now. So the studies today show that the uh, hormone therapy, testosterone suppression, estrogen replacement, it reduces testosterone levels very effectively. So that's no problem. And, and with that sort of typical treatment, you go way below 10. In, in our study, for example, they're around one, one animal. So that's not the issue. So the issue is that the therapy is not very effective in reducing the male advantage. So typically we see changes in muscle, or decrements in muscle mass around 5%. Uh, similarly, small changes in strength. Now this is on untrained people, but it sort of shows that the physio physiological effects alone of the therapy, if you just disregard what would happen with training and stuff, if you just look at the hormone therapy, it seemed to reduce muscle mass around 5% in these transgender women. So which is only about one fifth of the initial advantage because males are 40, 50% stronger and they have 30% more muscle mass. So it reduces a very small fraction of the advantage. And that creates this problem that there you have sort of scientific arguments to to propose that fairness is not guaranteed with this therapy. There is still a potential advantage of having been biologically male and then transitioning to, uh, to, to a woman. Yeah, so when I started diving into the available research, I was pretty surprised by how significant the advantages were. Um, I know in weightlifting, I saw the male advantage was 30% and in powerlifting, it was as high as 60% in some cases. And uh, even in some of the research I saw, hormone therapy that extended beyond eight years, the advantage here was only reduced by about 5%, kind of similar to what you had mentioned. Now, I also wanted to discuss the age that individuals transition. I've seen research showing performance differences before puberty still being about 9 to 16%, so quite a bit smaller. But most of the performance benefits appear to come after puberty. So I was wondering how much of a difference that makes in terms of the time that individuals transition. Sure. So I think what you can say is, I mean, the performance difference between boys and girls before puberty is certainly smaller than the differences we see in after puberty. That's one thing. And I, I think they are also more uh, more inconsequential. So there, there are examples when a girl has had the 
sprinting world record for age 11 etc for example so more inc inconsequential I, there are studies and we cite that in our literature review on the topic as well that show differences average differences even at various young ages in terms of throwing capacity uh, jumping etc so th there could be differences uh, they are certainly smaller i think sometimes it's not i, I don't think we can be entirely sure that all the or the that the full potential difference is explained by bio biological factors there could also be you know social cultural uh, factors in the upbringing of uh, boys and girls and, and, uh, and these kind of things so uh, certainly the the implications of the potential small male advantage even before puberty is not I mean by far not as you know uh, important as the consequences uh, after puberty right and so what would some of those like sociocultural uh, differences be I mean it could that's certainly out, out of my expertise uh, but it can be you know things like how girls are raised how boys are raised this kind of you know stuff that is you know hot in, in discussions as well in the society gender roles and expectancies of what it means to be a boy what it means to be a girl what kind of activities you should do the if the opportunities are equal or not uh, to play sport train sport uh, do they have access to the same training uh, do they have the same sort of training uh, opportunities? Uh, do they have equal uh, coaching, uh, etc.? So, but again, uh, slightly outside of my my sort of uh, research, but uh, clearly those are factors that you know could be discussed as potential factors as well contributing to differences. So some of the research I've read has shown a significant synergistic effect that wasn't really explained by differences in strength, power, or levers alone. So for instance, I know throwing was a big one, and even one paper that was looking at punching power actually showed a 162% difference in punching power between males and females. So I was wondering if you'd be able to touch on this and just kind of shed a little bit of insight on why this might be happening. Basically, if you... If you look at the difference in muscle mass, if you look at the difference in in strength, etc., you 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 don't really reach 160 percent, right? Uh, so probably this is due to the combination of of all the different factors you mentioned. Some of them, so muscle mass could be the anatomy of the upper body. Uh, it could be lever arms. It could be you know. Uh, tendon properties, connective tissue properties, uh, it could be muscle architecture. So, uh, so several factors where males have a an advantage if you combine them. The average uh, sort of already the net effect of all these advantages results or culminates into a very big advantage in this, in this case in terms of punching power. And, and that's my best explanation. And I don't. Uh, I haven't really tried to sort of break it down to some kind of mathematical model to make it sort of to make the equation make sense. Uh, 
I, I do trust uh, the the study and uh, and the sort of data. I don't think there's a lot of studies though me measuring these more complex sport specific actions like a punching uh, motion, for example. But uh, clearly, uh, when you add different uh, factors together, the net results become you know very big performance difference between men and women. I think it's the same in in uh, team sports. To be honest, I mean. Because you cannot really attribute the big difference between men and women in, in for example, I'm, I, I'm, I was a footballer myself, so in Euro Europe, so this mean, that means soccer in, in North America, right? So uh, we know there, for example, that the Swedish women team are among the best and they are beaten comfortably by the Stockholm County under 15 boys, for example, and we know that you, uh, the American soccer team, uh, the women's team, they are probably the best team in the world. They were beaten by Dallas under 15 comfortably as well. And these uh, massive differences in performance uh, cannot really be explained by by the bi biological differences because they have not really reached full maturity at this age. And we also have from sprinting, for example, that 14-year-old boys beat the best women sprinters for example so sometimes it's i think it's about adding several small uh, advantages and the sort of net effect of those uh, creates ultimately an even bigger advantage so one of the interesting things i drew from that paper was that physiological determinants for high performance can really change dramatically depending on the sport so for instance power to weight ratios, upper versus lower body distribution and muscle mass, uh, things like tendon stiffness, reaction time, and, and so on. So I wanted to know, like, are there differences in muscle density and tendon stiffness between males and females? And also, how much is that actually affected by hormone therapy? Sure. So uh, in terms of muscle density, uh, the... Uh, depends on how you measure it the, women have more females have more uh, intramuscular fat uh, in general uh, than males uh, if you measure the protein concentration and stuff from a muscle biopsy i think it's pretty similar so i don't i don't think there's a huge difference in co like contractile density for example uh, i think that's pretty similar if you just uh, compare it with the uh, square centimeter or square millimeter area on the muscle. I think it's the contractile density is fairly similar. Women have do have slightly more intramuscular fat. Uh, in terms of uh, tendon and connective tissue properties, we do in our review, we do cite some studies indicating that uh, males have an advantage there in terms of uh, uh, cross-sectional area of the tendon and also uh, the stiffness, which is important for force production. With hormone therapy, we, we don't really know what happened with tendon and uh, connective tissue. Nobody has uh, studied that, so we, we can't really say what happens there. There doesn't seem to be a substantial change, given that muscle strength per se is not changing that much. We do see in our study, and our study on transgender people, I think it's the only one who has, has looked at uh, fat infiltration and we do see a reduction in fat infiltration they become 
actually more like the female reference levels than the male reference level after hormone therapy. So it, there does seem to be a reduction in fat infiltration. But again, that doesn't seem to translate to any big difference in or change in strength, for example. So, uh, but yeah, very few studies have, have looked at that. So it's more the most of the studies looking at longitudinal changes in transgender people have looked at uh, lean body mass, uh, hemoglobin. Uh, some uh, has looked at strength, etc. But but it's more these sort of more gross, uh, crude measures of, of you know body composition, basically. And I know one of the the subjects that kind of comes up is. Uh bone mass and bone mineral density and how that's potentially negatively impacted by some of these uh, hormone therapies that are going on. Um, and I, I've seen different, you know, research on that. And I remember when I was reading your paper as well, you guys definitely discussed that. And I was wondering if you could talk on that and also um, just sort of relate it to performance. So how does bone mass, how does um, like, skeletal morphology in general impact performance in a variety of different ways yeah i mean a lot of that i don't think we know exactly but but uh, we our conclusion from reviewing the literature was actually that bone mineral density doesn't change significantly with the hormone therapy and it makes sense because on the on a mechanistic level estrogen is very important for for bone mineral density and bone mineral uh, or bone remodeling, and and actually they get supplemented with with estrogen. So it, it it makes sense actually that bone mineral density doesn't change. So that means that they sort of maintain their they maintain the bone densities, the sort of anatomical features of the skeleton, uh, because they I mean obviously they don't reduce in height, so they are equally tall etc that they were prior to transitioning so and you know this uh, it, it can be an advantage in many sports like uh, men have a narrower pelvis uh, probably better anatomy and biomechanics for some sports uh, i guess it's possible to find sports where the it could be a disadvantage as well to be big for example of course but uh, in general they they maintain uh, the structure that they have on the bones and and that could of course as well then translate into to performance advantages yeah and i mean that makes sense because um from one of the follow papers that i saw as well there didn't really seem to be an increase in fracture rates uh when when they were looking or following um trans women over a 12-month period of, of testosterone suppression so that does seem to kind of makes sense then. Um, One thing that I was actually curious about was how like bone geometry would impact injury rates. Uh, So specifically for like, let's say lower knee injuries or or something like that, or sorry, lower rates of knee injury. Yeah. I remember I was trying to sort of read a bit on that when we did the review paper, because it's, uh, this is probably, you know, slightly out of my expertise as well. And I, I think it was difficult. I mean, there are some papers, review papers, suggesting that there are differences in injuries between men and women. It does seem to be not so much maybe about injury incidents per se, but more about where the injury occurs, if it's the knee or if it's the 
the ankle or whatever so that that can differ uh, we certainly know in in some team sports like in soccer that i'm familiar with that acl and acl acl injuries uh, to the knee are much more common in in uh, female players compared with male players i think we are, it's like a six tenfold six or tenfold increased risks because because of the different you know uh, q angle and and uh, pelvis uh, width and stuff like that so so i think this differs between different sports uh, probably and it it made it, there may be you know differences in where the injuries occur etc depending on if you have this sort of typical female anatomy or the typical male uh, anatomy i don't i don't think the sort of injury implications are as sort of uh, problematic or relevant in in the in this sort of guideline discussion with transgender individuals in sports i think the, this male advantage in strength and power and muscle mass is have stronger implications for for you know the, the need to protect the female category and and the need for appropriate inclusion criteria okay so you don't necessarily think that the, it, it would confer a potential protective effect against uh, against injuries over over females necessarily it, it i mean it could be in some sports and some uh, at some injury sites but then again there may be other injury sites that are more common in males and stuff so i'm not sure uh, but to be honest, uh, I'm sure there are other people in the world that could answer that better, probably. And but the thing is also that we don't really know, right? We're sort of speculating based on what we know from from physiology and from the effects of hormone therapy and from uh, reported injury sites and injury frequencies in sports. But we don't really know what happened with the injury risk in transgender people undergoing the therapy. Right, that makes sense. And so one of the things that I was interested in as well is um, I, I remember that one of the studies that I was looking at was talking about um, there's sort of a bit of a disassociation between losses in muscle mass and reductions in strength. And it didn't necessarily seem that they were, they had like a linear relationship. Any, the, the, the one that I'm looking at in particular, uh, let me just open it up. Oh, actually, this is, this is your review paper. Um, mm -hmm. And essentially, one of the things that I found interesting was reductions in muscle mass, like, like I mentioned earlier, didn't necessarily seem to equate to an equivalent loss of, of muscular strength. And I just wanted to know why that might be. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, uh, muscle mass and strength are related at baseline always. So typically, the correlation between muscle mass and strength is like 0.7, which means for 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 people that are not into statistics and science that means basically that muscle mass explain half of the variance in strength basically so it's not a perfect uh, it's not a one-to-one -one relationship because there are other factors than muscle mass that affects strength so obviously a neural uh, recruitment and neural firing frequencies or the activation neural activation of the muscle is important we have the tendon and connected tissue properties like tendon stiffness tendon size and stuff uh, we have a muscle architecture pination angle uh, how the sarcomeres are arranged if they are in series or in you know parallel and stuff like that so there's 
mus strength is more complex than just measuring muscle mass but there is a correlation what interestingly interestingly though what we see and others see and has been discussed a lot lately in the research literature is that the change in strength and the change in muscle mass during a short intervention doesn't correlate very well so you can have a very big increase in strength with almost no change in muscle mass and you can have a big change in muscle mass with a quite modest change in strength so the correlation is very low so there's a baseline correlation but the, if you correlate the change over an intervention so the change in muscle mass with the change in strength that correlation is much much weaker suggesting that other factors uh, over an intervention are important for explaining the variance in strength could be tendon properties neural activation probably as well during the especially since many interventions are quite short so that's probably one of the reasons why there is no you know perfect agreement between the change in muscle mass and change in strength i think uh, it could one you know i think one potential factor a little bit as well could be that most of the longitudinal studies on transgender people so far has been on untrained people it means that and typically the studies can't really you know logistically uh, motivate and you know the number of sessions the participants have to come in etc you can't really afford to do three familiarization sessions just to let them practice the strength test for example so there is a possibility in my opinion that there is a small learning effect from the baseline test to the post test so let's say after 12 months so basically then okay it's this test i've done it before i know how to do it i'm going to do it even better now it there is this possibility when you study and measure very untrained people compared with athletes for example that you have a small learning effect as well so i think that could be behind some of the studies where where there is basically no change in strength at all at all my, my sort of gut feeling is that I, I i think both muscle mass and strength are affected fairly similarly by hormone therapy so a small reduction right and so you actually mentioned something that was pretty interesting about uh, most of the research being on untrained um untrained trans women and I was curious how that might change depending on uh, their level their level of training so generally speaking the the common assumption is once you go on hormone therapy your performance is going to decrease it's going to see a market decrease um, however, that's not necessarily the case and performance reductions aren't necessarily inevitable, especially depending on the level of training experience the individual has, what level of athlete they are, as well as even the, the efficacy of their program. And I, I think you mentioned the, the, the specifically the program, uh, the quality of the program in your review paper as well, because it's, it's not only possible, but it's been demonstrated that several individuals, you know, once they go through this, can continue making progress beyond their their previous athletic ability. And so I was wondering why that might be and, and some of the additional variables, I guess, that could influence an individual's ability to uh, make progress, increase strength, increase speed, increase running performance, whatever it might be, pre and post hormone therapy. 
Sorry, I know that was like a really broad question, but... Yeah, sure. But it's a very interesting question because... And it has been discussed a lot. And, and you know, I was involved in, in this sort of expert group that presented the scientific data for World Rugby before they sort of uh, their policy group took the decision to not allow transgender female rugby players to play in women's rugby. And this was discussed there because obviously it's a problem from a sports perspective that we have no scientific information from studies on athletes, uh, which is kind of obvious. There are very few uh, and they have not been you know, studied in research. So the information we have is from untrained people. So, the, and that has also been one of the major critiques towards world rugby and towards, uh, you know, basically, so that the, the people that argue that transgender people, uh, women should be included, they claim that, you know, the research has not been done in, in athletes, so the research is not relevant. What I argue is that the research is very relevant, but yes, we acknowledge that it has not been done in uh, athletes. But what you must ask next, next then is, so how would that differ then? What would happen in athletes? So what some people seem to think is just that, okay, there are athletes, they are more trained, so they're going to lose more. Okay, that's theoretically possible, but very few, and this is very surprising to me, uh, very few people acknowledge the fact that a transgender female athlete who's serious in her sport, she's going to probably want to continue to train, right? And maybe even do everything she can to minimize the negative effects of testosterone suppression. So that means undergo intense resistance training, uh, high protein diet, creatine supplementation. There are a lot of, you know, things you can do to optimize the maintenance of muscle mass. Now in that scenario, it's very likely that you don't lose anything, uh, I think, because there are studies showing that you can build muscle mass on testosterone suppression. And there are studies on prostate cancer patients undergoing uh, androgen deprivation therapy that they can increase lean mass, they can increase strength substantially on testosterone suppression. It's probably harder than, you know, without uh, testosterone suppression, but it shows that we, ha we still have a physiological capability to adapt to training. So it becomes a very difficult question to address because it's also like, and this is not so much a biology, it's more like philosophy, philosophy like do, do the trans woman, does she want to prioritize her athletic cap capacities at this point when she undergoes therapy or does she want to allow and promote the sort of feminization of the body, which is really the intention of the therapy. But the problem is for sports, they cannot sort of guess on that. They have to have regulations that uh, ensure fair competition and they can never, in my opinion, uh, prohibit athletes from training. So they must be allowed to train. That's the core essence of sport. And obviously then you there is a situation where, you know, they may lose some muscle mass strength. The athletes, they may even lose a lot if they are very trained from the beginning and then they prioritize the hormone therapy and the 
sort of allows the changes to occur. But they may lose almost nothing if they do everything they can to, you know, counteract the negative effects of testosterone suppression by resistance training, optimal diet, uh, you know, optimize everything. So it's very, that's a very tricky question that, so to my, in my opinion, it's a bit strange that uh, this is not discussed more in this topic because people just seem to assume that what happens in the sort of uh, you're sitting on your couch scenario, that's sort of going to translate into the real situation. And then I haven't even mentioned the individual variability we have. So some some in our study lost 10%, some lost nothing. What do you do about that? So are you going to just go with the group average values? Or, or I mean, it's, there's a lot of, it becomes very complicated from a sport body perspective if you have, when you sort of have to make guidelines. Yeah, I definitely would not want to be <laughs> the one in charge of that because yeah. <laughs> there's just so many variables to, to try and account for. And I think it's very difficult to <clears throat> ensure, you know, fair competition while simultaneously being inclusive. And, yeah, right um, now it's that, not possible. And that's the issue. So it, yeah. that, that's this current situation, to be honest. They, uh, it's not possible right now to balance those two, which means that sports has to prioritize one over the other. That's right. the current situation. Yeah, I, I know. I know in powerlifting, anyways. I, or actually, maybe maybe I'm mistaken about this, but I believe that there are certain powerlifting federations that allow transgender women to compete um, within their own category. I believe. Um, Isn't that in uh, Canada that that someone I, actually I, tried to sort of play with the system and just said, "Hey, hey, I'm a I'm a I'm a woman. I'm going to compete in the women." Yeah, actually, I I reread that article the other day. Um, gosh, I can't remember. I can't remember the name of the athlete. Uh, but yeah, something like that happened, and uh, and then it was determined after that the competitor was was a, a transgender woman, and I believe they were stripped of the medal. Uh, oh, but, okay. then I, I, but then I believe that that now I could be completely wrong here, so I don't know. But I believe that that did lead to a a creation of a new um, a new branch or a new class or category. I'm not sure exactly what you call it, oh. specifically for transgender women. I, I could be wrong, but I, I know that there were at least discussions about that, and I, I'm not sure if that passed, but I'm pretty sure it did. But um, Yeah, that may be, and that's been discussed, but uh, you know, it's problematic because there are so few still. So yeah, you're, you're kind of competing the, against yourself, the, I guess, right? Yeah, exactly. The, the question if, you know, is it meaningful to have separate transgender categories uh yeah that's a problem yeah so one of the other things that uh i guess i wanted to hear what some of the research said about was um was the impact on aerobic capacity and things like vo2 max and stuff like that post hormone therapy and how how that actually impacts aerobic performance yeah sure so to my knowledge, there's no study that has looked at VO2 max per se, so actually measured VO2 max uh, with uh, hormone therapy. Uh, but quite a few studies have measured hemoglobin mass and or hemoglobin concentration, I should say. And they typically show that 12 months is enough to 
reduce uh, hemoglobin levels essentially to down to female levels so hemoglobin seemed to be one of the parameters that have been measured so far that actually is reduced to basically you know uh, female levels so that has implications for aerobic capacity because hemoglobin is very important for oxygen and carrying capacity and presumably VO2 max goes down then how much we're not really sure we've seen there is there are a few there there's a case report uh, from the I from the world athletics where they measure performance changes in these uh, these are not transgender athletes but uh, DSD athletes like Castor Semenya and they show that the performance went down in running events like five percent uh, then there's uh, there was a recent study on military people uh, published in British Journal of Sports Medicine showing that run, even though running performance was reduced in transgender women it was not reduced uh, not even after two and a half year was it reduced to to the sort of female level so there was still an advantage but certainly I think the overall conclusion is that the males and females or, or transgender women if you compare transgender women post transition post hormone therapy with sort of reference women there is sort of more they are closer to parity and and you know closer to fairness compared with strength muscle mass and these measures is it uh, is the advantage neutralized completely i don't think it is at least not after 12 months uh, could be after several years that uh, that's the case but this is just showing that each sport is different depending on which key physical determinants uh, we play with in, in the different sports so actually what we what we say in in, uh, in the later part of our review is actually that it doesn't make sense perhaps to have the same transgender guidelines for all sports because they are different and there may be a few sports where fairness could be achieved after a couple of years maybe but then there are other sports where probably it can never be achieved and then you have some sports like rugby american football uh, con contact collision sports bo boxing wrestling whatever that there are also safety concerns so then you, you're not only balancing fairness and inclusion, you're also balancing with safety and player welfare, which is very important. And that was actually deemed to be at the highest priority for World Rugby, for example, when they took the decision, the decision to, to ban uh, transgender uh, players from, or transgender female players from, from the women's uh, category in, in elite rugby. More on the aerobic side, would some of those differences be, like I know hemoglobin change, like you mentioned, but then would some of those differences in terms of preservation be from kind of peripheral, like peripheral factors like uh, capillary density, like total blood volume, the size of the heart, and like just just kind of things like that, like the 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 previous physiology of of the individual prior to um, hormone therapy. Yeah, I mean. Uh... 
I guess heart size is not going to change that much. I think blood volume is probably reduced because you have this, uh, you know, quite marked uh, decrease in hemoglobin concentration, and and that indicates to me that hemoglobin mass is is probably reduced uh, as well, and then probably plasma volume as well so I think no one has met nobody has measured blood volume we can do it in our lab and we're sort of planning to do it on, on if possible on, on transgender courts in the future but and and blood volume is very important for VU to max and for the stroke volume more, more important that many people realize um, because the heart cannot work alone to produce a high cardiac output it needs to be filled constantly with with uh, with the venous return, so a good, a greater, vo greater blood volume means greater VO2 max generally. And if you if you take away the blood volume, or the, if you take away the increase in blood volume with training, for example, you also also reduce VO2 max to the same extent actually. So I think blood volume is important. Uh, but then you have you know things like how does fat mass change and how does that relate to running and aerobic performance and does that differ between cycling when you lift up your body weight compared with running for example you have the anatomical anatomical advantages potentially in in running that you may not have to the same extent in cycling so i mean endurance performance is under research in that sense we do have the study on the military persons as i said uh, suggesting that there was still an advantage in running performance. It was one and a half mile running performance. Cycling, we don't know, but uh, I presume it's, it's probably quite similar. It's, uh, you know, determinant of, well, it's sort of power production, I guess, in the legs as well, which sort of speaks in favor for the advantage uh, of the male uh, puberty. Uh, and then you have the aerobic capacity, which is probably reduced. The question is, how much is it reduced and how long time does it take to be reduced so much that you can actually claim uh, fairness to be achieved. So how do some of the molecular mechanisms in muscle memory play a role in the preservation of muscle during hormone therapy and how might that actually impact the accretion of lean tissue in general moving forward? Yeah, sure. So I, I think... Uh, I mean, the honest answer is that we don't know really, but we are currently doing analysis on biopsies that we've taken from transgender individuals, and we're going to look at my nuclear density and, and stuff like that. But if you look at the density of my nuclei, it's quite similar between men and women, actually. Uh, and there are, you know, nice theories that my nuclei are long-lived and that you sort of have them for long uh, and that you potentially then would benefit. I mean, that's the whole mes muscle memory idea that you, if you have acquired more my nuclei with training, you maintain the nuclei. And then if you have a long detraining period and then start training again, you sort of acquire muscle mass and strength faster because you have these my nuclei. This idea has been challenged very recently by uh, you know some really good scientists in my opinion showing that they may be lost actually with detraining so there's there's debate uh, ongoing on that topic and i think that 
the public or your sort of popular scientific view of muscle memory is a, it's a very attractive hypothesis. I think people believe it's more sort of cemented than it, it actually is, this theory. In my opinion, there's, you know, there are some studies supporting it, but there are probably even more studies not supporting it. So uh, I'm not sure it has a big role in this, to be honest. I know that's really, I mean, we we touched upon it in our paper a few sentences. I know that other papers have discussed this even more as, you know, maybe even as the primary reason for why uh, this advantage would be retained it's, uh, and stuff like that. I, I'm I'm not convinced yet that uh, it is the mechanism. Uh, it may contribute, but I don't think it's gonna, it's the key mechanism. So during testosterone suppression therapy, I know that uh, estrogen is intentionally increased. Now, can you speak on the impact estrogen might have on anabolic signaling, and also could that have a protective effect on muscle mass? Yeah, that, that's one mechanism that I believe uh, more in, that actually estrogen is anabolic. And uh, we know that estrogen has a positive effect on muscle mass generally, like in uh, if you look at hormone re estrogen replacement therapy in uh, after menopause, for example, uh, in women, it has a protective effect on muscle mass. And uh, there are also other experiments in animal models showing that the estrogen is anabolic uh, so it could be that estrogen sort of rescues some of the negative effects of the testosterone suppression sort of balancing it up a little bit so that's uh, that's a possibility and that's a potentially a contributing factor why muscle mass doesn't change more than just a few percent after one year i, I think that's one potential mechanism I don't know. I guess this is a little bit of a, a newer branch of research that's kind of been emerging. Um, yeah, and no, obviously in sports it has arised, uh, you know, I think explosively in the last yeah, couple of years yeah. because uh, nobody, I remember when we started this project, which is like six years ago now, I, I didn't even think of it in terms of sports at that time actually because they, uh, all of these studies, including our studies so far, the primary goal has not been to study the implication for sports. It's been to study, you know, clinical implications of transgender hormone therapy, potential risks, uh, what happens with physiology, what happens with bone mineral density, do they have increased risk of fractures, do they reach their body composition goals? So the, the questions so far has been, have been mainly clinical, actually, and not related to sports. Could you just give like a, I guess, a brief overview of the, the current literature just to kind of summarize everything that we talked about and maybe, you know, even some things that maybe I didn't ask um, that's related to this subject in general? Sure. So in terms of the research, there are uh, 13 longitudinal studies so far on that have included transgender women and studied some aspects of uh, physiology related to performance, mainly lean body mass, muscle strength, uh, hemoglobin, I would say, those parameters. Uh, well, the 13 studies actually goes for studies that have in included some measure of either muscle size, 
lean body mass or strength. And they all very actually consistently show that these measures, muscle mass, strength, body, lean body mass, are reduced only like 5% with the 12 months therapy. We know uh, very little about what happens beyond 12 months. We, there are some studies after three years. There is one cross-sectional study after eight years. What they seem to suggest is that there is a plateau effect, which means that in, in the study that included a three-year measurement, for example, there was not much of a change from one to three years. So this seems to indicate that the changes occur fairly rapidly, the small changes occur fairly rapidly, and then there's a plateau. And even in the cross-sectional study, looking at eight years, they were still, I think it was 25% stronger than uh, reference women, for example, uh, on average, the transgender women. So that's the status right now. Everything we have so far suggests fairly small changes. And since the average differences between males and females are so big from the beginning, this means that only about one-fifth of the advantage is reduced, which creates this conflict between fairness and inclusion. So IOC and other sport bodies, they hoped, of course, that you know this therapy could work. We could have both inclusion and fairness at the same time. But currently, the situation is that they don't go hand in hand. So sports need to prioritize. And this is, uh, as you started this part by saying, this is very, you know, an emotive topic now and sensitive and discussed a lot because it's basically a colliding rights issue. Women have the right to have a protected category. Transgender people should be respected and they should also be allowed to play a sport. The question is, can it be done in the category they identify with or can it not because of the biological sex uh, differences and the implication for performance but i think you can otherwise i think you covered uh, most of it uh, these are i mean i'm a biologist and physiologist and sports scientist so i'm mainly you know focusing on on those so obviously there are you know legal ethical uh, you know social aspects of this issue as well which makes it even more complicated yeah it's definitely a really contentious subject i i guess honestly the intention of of this podcast was i've just seen a lot of people talking about these things and kind of in my opinion doing a pretty bad job on both sides right because there's like there's the research that obviously you and, and other scientists put out and then there's this kind of game of telephone where by the time you see it you know a post on facebook it's it's a pretty far cry from from what was actually found in any of the papers that are being referenced. So the intention was more so just to to get good quality information out there about the subject and say okay, where does the research you know put us right now? What are some potential directions of of research moving forward? Um, and what are the implications for for trans women and just competitive sports in general and in the, the landscape fairness and kind of answer some of these questions without going too much into like ethics and, and yeah. things like that. Just kind of strictly trying to stay into the, uh, the, the more biophysical side of things. Um, but are, are you working on any research at the moment uh, in, with, uh, with this? Yeah, sure. So we've, we're actually still running the study. We have uh, 
some of the participants uh, or patients they have been uh, uh, several years now on, on hormone therapy so we are planning uh, to do a five-year follow-up and some of them are close to that mark now we were actually planning on scanning them some of the some of the first patients even a few months ago but actually the sort of pandemic have created some problems to bring in people to the lab but we're, so that's what we're doing we're planning a five-year follow-up we're also doing right now analysis on muscle biopsies that were collected so we will in the future publish on uh, what happens with fiber size uh, my nuclear density capillary density satellite cells uh, so basically to try to get some more mechanistic information of what actually goes on in the muscles and you know potential explanations for their findings and this is interesting not only for in trans i mean we've focused everything here on transgender women but obviously in transgender men as well who increase a lot in muscle mass and strength what are the mechanisms at the sort of muscular and molecular level explaining those marked effects from testosterone for example yeah, that's really interesting. I would definitely uh, look forward to reading that once once it comes out. So we're kind of getting past the hour mark, and I definitely want to be respectful of your time. So where, where can people find you? Uh, people can find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram, uh, where my name is TL Exercise on both those platforms. Uh, and through my institution, Karolinska Institute, that you can also find my email on the website. Awesome. So all that stuff's going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. Thank you so much for uh, for jumping on, um, Tommy. It was, it was really awesome. Super, super interesting conversation. And I, I loved your paper. Um, I spent the last couple of days just kind of going through it and reading some of the citations. It was really, really interesting. I was actually shocked by... Uh, by quite a few of the findings that uh, that you had pointed out in there. So yeah. thanks so much for, for doing the work. Thanks for jumping on here and kind of sharing this great information with everyone. Yeah, thank you um, for having me.